little closer to my mouth now. Is that better? Yeah. Okay, good. All right, so before we record, I need to tell you about a couple of things. Or rather, I mean, I need to talk about a couple of things. The very first thing is I got the domain names aluminumtubepodcast.com and altubepodcast.com. Smart. And they take you to my landing page okay. where you can tip me via Cash App or Venmo. And also, you can join the Patreon. That's so exciting because that's kind of what we started our conversation the last, the last time, time we, we record. recorded. Yeah, exactly. So the Patreon is just $3 a month. Right now, I'm just trying to buy some equipment so I can do a special spot that I'll reveal later once I get the equipment. But yeah, I'm just trying to buy some equipment. So that anyway, join the Patreon. I think that's fair. If I know you, I'm going to join. If you join the Patreon, you can get a you can get a decal for joining. And then if you just tip me or whatever and leave your address, I'll send you a, uh, a decal as well. They're a really so cool that. design. And they're nice and square, so they fit good in a lot of spots so in addition to that i want to tell you about this landing page cast pie okay so you go to castpie.com mm-hmm. and then all you do is just put in what podcast you have and then it generates a landing page for you and it's free okay. oh that's and so you neat. can it's like Linktree, but like way for better podcasts it's for podcasts but it's also better it, it has tons of features this is not a paid advertisement i use cast pie mm-hmm. and it is absolutely fantastic so I just wanted to give Caspi a quick little plug because it has been a game changer. People have like podcast websites. Yeah. But nobody really visits websites. They see it on their phone. Right. It needs to look good on the phone. And that's what Caspi does. And it does it automatically. And who doesn't it's fully like, configurable. And who doesn't like pie? Right, exactly. And the and the very last thing I want to talk about is my friend Alex runs a podcast called Social Animals. I uh, saw them featured on your Instagram. Y'all swap decals, right? He's going to actually come on to my show later in the year. So I'm thinking probably April he's going to come on and then I'm going to come on his podcast. His podcast is about friends. Yeah. It's about how you get friends, what friends you've had, how you lose friends, and it interviews people and uh, talks about how they got their friends. And That would be so interesting to hear from you because you, as a pilot, have traveled the world and you have friends in all corners of the world. Yes. And it, it can be really hard to maintain those friendships. And Alex, I think, wanted me on specifically for that. So it's an, it's an interesting situation. And he mm-hmm. loves my podcast and he's a great host too. And so I do recommend it. He's Canadian. So I'll yeah. be traveling to Toronto, you know, for us to join up and collaborate. So what do they say? A? At yeah, the end exactly. Of everything? Canadian A? Yeah, Toronto A. Eh? I'm going to have to wait till it warms up. Oh, gosh. It's cold yeah. in Toronto. So anyway, those are the notes I had. Okay. So let's just get into the story. That sounds good. Well, and also go to <laughs> socialanimals.ca. Okay, Check cool. them out. It's actually a really good podcast. What I'm looking forward to is a inside the aluminum tube t-shirt because that I'm logo there. you got it's coming soon. is top notch. I need it on a black tee. Absolutely. And, and it is coming. Like I said, it's coming soon. So cue the intro. <gasps> You're listening to Inside the Aluminum Tube. This podcast has adult language and sometimes contains graphic descriptions of accidents and incidents often resulting in death. If you're scared to fly, proceed with caution. Sir, are your pants meowing? Yeah, you interested? Pull up. No, the plane is about to crash. Wind shear. You're looking a little anxious, Kent. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Increase climb. Only if you really need me to. Threw his clothes off, had an accident, got his tree, and went night-night. 50, 40. Oh, so like some dumb bro shit. Okay, cool. Cool, 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 cool. 30, 20. I'm sorry, I'm a little overwhelmed by what you just said. Hence being poked in the rear uh, as a man in the middle of the aisle. Climb now. Given the context that you've given me, this does not sound like a good plan. Clear of conflict. (laughs) Okay, this is an aviation history podcast, which looks at events in aviation history like air disasters, accidents, incidents, mishaps. Aviation history is worth remembering. So I'm here to tell you the stories and keep them interesting. I'm Shannon Baker. I'm your host. And I'm the creator. If you want to see pictures of the events, and in this episode, you're really going to want to see pictures of the events, you're going to have to follow me on Instagram and Twitter, both at AluminumTube. And you can even email me your ideas at AluminumTubePodcast at gmail.com. Or you can just go to AluminumTubePodcast.com. And there's a link that you can email me right there. And I think more importantly, this episode, we have a special guest his name is Rocket. He's a very good boy, and he's asleep here next to us. Yeah, he's an old boy. He's going to be on the Instagram. If anything, go to the Instagram for that. It's worth it. 
So my co-host is Mary Hall, as you all know, and she's returning from last episode. Woo! You want to talk about anything? Give myself a little cheer. We are recording in the evening, which we don't normally do. That's right. We normally do in mornings. Normally we have a cup of coffee or uh, chai in our hand, but today we have some like evening mint tea so which is curious what this energy for the this podcast is going to turn out being hopefully good i'm curious about this story well i'll tell you what we're gonna get into it right you're gonna tell me the story i was gonna like try to like wrap it i was i was gonna try to tell you something about the story you haven't given me anything away sometimes you do give me a hint here and there before we record at least if like it's tragic or funny but i I'm going into this knowing nothing, which well, is kind of my favorite thing. Right. And I, and I was, like I said, I was going to like say something about it or, but no. let's not do that. Let's just get into it. You tell such a good story, lay it on me. I'm going to bed after this because I have to get up at 2 a.m. This oh, is my bedtime story. God, I hate that. Okay. In this story, we have to start with context because today context is important and you're going to need some. I feel like I'm always the one asking for context. I'm like, what year did this happen? What was going on in the world? So please, right. so this is, this what is I want. context. So we have to do context on this because we're going back a little ways. Okay. We're not going back to 1991 or anything like that. Okay. We are going back farther than that. Mm-hmm. Here's your context. On April 12th, 1945. Okay. President Franklin D. Roosevelt died from complications to the lifelong effects of polio. Right. While the war raged on in the Pacific, Germany was officially defeated and Europe was liberated on May 7th, 1945. President Harry S. Truman would soon order the use of the nuclear bomb developed by Robert Oppenheimer's team and the Manhattan Project that would end the war in the Pacific. Yes. So we are talking about World War II. I'm very familiar. My dad is a U.S. history teacher, so I definitely understand where we are in the world. There you go. There's a little context. The U.S. Also the, sorry, also the suits at this time because like there is some money. Oh, yeah. That's right. Sorry. Go ahead. The United States was entering a time of peace and by July of 1945, with the end of the war in sight, New Yorkers were hopeful for the future. The troops were already starting to come home and things were looking up and spirits were running high. When you say New Yorkers, does that mean this happens in New York, this story? Yes. (gasps) I'm excited. In that year, year, the average family in the United States was making just $2,400 a year. Right. That's pretty great when you consider that the average house costs just $4,500. Wow. So two years of salary, you could buy a house. Pay for your house. Right. That's amazing. Rent was $60 a month. A car cost about $1,000. And gas, just 15 cents a gallon. You tore out my heart and stomped on it when you said rent was $60 a month. (laughs) Well, let me put this in perspective. So in 2021 dollars, that means the average person would earn $37,000 a year. Okay. A house, though, would cost just $70,000. Right, which is the price of a car, some cars. Oh, yes. Now, rent wasn't that much less because rent would be about the equivalent of $925 a month. Okay, so it... And gas, to put in perspective, would be about $2.30 a gallon. So nice. things haven't changed that much except the price of housing. That has changed a whole lot. So Too much. Too much. Okay. Reasonable real estate prices, huh? <laughs> Yeah, okay. you're talking to somebody who lives in uh, Brooklyn, New York, who came from the South. And then people are like, every time I go home, they're like, why would you spend that much money a month to stay there in a shoebox? And I'm like, because it's not here. <laughs> <laughs> right, because it's not there. All it's right. like I can go downstairs and get uh, a sandwich, a bottle of wine, like the best Asian food I've ever had. You're just Homemade from candles. Everything. Right. All on my block. The the city has its advantages. The dry cleaner is like two, not even like five Below steps me. away. Yeah. Okay. So are you ready to talk about airplanes? That was your context. I appreciate the context. I think it's important. It is. It was an important context. So you're ready to talk about airplanes, right? Because you know this podcast is about aviation history. Really? Mm-hmm. I didn't even know mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so we're talking about the North American B-25 Mitchell. Wait a second. <laughs> That's the name of the airplane. Is it named after a person named Mitchell? It is. Okay. okay. It's a medium-sized bomber that was developed and flown in 1939 and introduced in 1941 and named in honor of Major General Billy Mitchell. Okay. A pioneer was- in of U.S. military aviation. That makes sense. Okay. So we're talking about military airplanes. Well, kind of. We're we haven't really there. gotten into that no. world on your podcast before. No, we really haven't. And and today is going to be a little different. Mm. I am going to do some uh, military episodes, though. That they are, Those it will is be coming. interesting. It is coming. They're all interesting. What am I kidding? Thank you. It was used by many allied forces... The B-25 served in every theater in World War II, and after the war ended, many remained in service, mm-hmm. operating for four more decades. They kept running them until the 80s. Doing what? A whole variety of stuff. Okay. It was produced in a number of variants. In all, nearly 10,000 B-25s were built. That is a lot. And how many variants do you know? There are many variants. Oh, okay. So I'm not. Also, I don't want. We don't. I don't want to get too much into the variants because there are so many. Got it. Also, every time you say B25, I'm thinking you're talking about a bus because that's how the buses are labeled in New York. <laughs> it's like Manhattan is M and then the number, and then Brooklyn is B and then the number. So I'm like, what tra- what bus are you talking about? So like the Brooklyn bus. Okay. The B25 was considered safe and forgiving. I, uh, I except mean, the bus doesn't fly. So. The B-25 was a great... Did it ever transport people, though? It did. The B-25 was great to fly. It was loved by its pilots and crew. Oh, that's nice. It had tricycle landing gear, which was different (laughs) from the tail wheel landing gear. Do you want to see a picture? Yeah. All right. Let's have a picture. Oh, it's really cute. So tricycle means normal. Okay. Because prior to this, the tail would have had a wheel on it, and then there would have been two wheels under the wings, Mm -hmm. but no nose wheel. So it would have slanted back. Okay, very small. Very small compared to an airliner. But it doesn't look tall, so it wouldn't be like a private jet kind of experience. Well, this airplane was designed as a bomber, so it's a heavy lifter. So it is designed with a lot of power. Yeah. Doesn't have that much, doesn't need that much space inside. No, that's not, it's not meant for comfort. Right, it's not meant for comfort. It's designed with lots of power to carry a heavy payload. Right. I feel like if you asked me what era to pick that plane out of, I could. I think that's probably accurate. I think you could pick it out. It is really interesting looking, though. Tricycle landing gear are awesome because previous to this, we used what what I called a tailwheel airplane, which yeah. slanted up. And the problem with tailwheel airplanes is it was hard to see when you were taxiing. That's a problem. Because it's... you're pointing at the sky right you have to kind of like you actually had to weave back and forth so you could see what was in front of you but tricycle gear fixed this problem you know as a point of reference everything is tricycle landing gear now okay because it was the best it's just the smartest way to do it correct now tricycle landing gear made for what like we said excellent visibility when Mm -hmm. we're taxiing it also made it safe and easy for landing operations because tailwheel airplanes can be more difficult to land for a variety of reasons, I don't really want to talk about it's aerodynamic stuff, but they can be tough to land and they're much easier to crash on a landing. This isn't a physics podcast. We're no, not getting into that. I don't want to get into that. <laughs> and it also made it easier to service, including load. Why? Because if you're trying to load an airplane that's sloped backwards. Oh, and this is, it looked way more level. It's level. Yes. Yeah. So servicing it from underneath, loading things onto it, you're loading from a level surface to a level surface. Versus older airplanes where you had to like get in the tail and then you really had to climb uphill to get to your seat. It that was, doesn't sound like any fun. No. This is very modern comparatively. No wonder its uh, crew members loved it. Right. It seemed to be the new it's, best it's the thing. Evolution. Yeah, yeah. It's the new best thing. You're right. And it had two engines. They're propellers. Because mm-hmm. at the time they didn't have jet engines. Right. The engines were very powerful. They were built by the Wright Company, which is... The Wright brothers. Right. They were 14-cylinder, two-row, air-cooled, radial piston engines. And I'm going to tell you what that means in a second. I was about to ask. I'm just going to show you a picture, and you're going to understand it immediately. Got it. They make 1,700 horsepower each. 
Wow. I told you they're he- it's a heavy lifter. That's right? crazy. <laughs> it has to make a lot of power because if it doesn't make a lot of power, it can't carry bombs because it's a bomber. Because bombs are fucking heavy. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Now check this out. I have an animated GIF. <gasps> now you understand how it works. This is so neat. You Can you post GIF? You can I, post GIFs on I Instagram. I will post this. Yes, yeah. I absolutely can. And I will post this. Wow. So as you can see That's from cool. this one, the yeah. propeller just goes right onto that shaft mm-hmm. right there. Hmm. And then it works like that. I feel like a lot of mechanics are built on very basic Oh yeah, it's um, like the simplest way to do it. Now let's figure out the you know let's figure out the best way to do it. That's yeah. the easiest, and then like multiply it and to make it more powerful. Right, and what they did is they actually took this and they stacked one right behind it, and they just tilted oh, it a little bit. Yeah, but it all hooked to the same shaft. Yeah, radial engines were not used in cars or anything but airplanes. Because Why would you need them in cars? Because they m- they meet that form exactly. They like fit you don't in need the cowling them of the airplane. You don't need that in, in a car. Else. We saw the engine. Now, let's talk about what's wrong with the B-25. Because no. the B-25 is great, but let's talk about it's what's wrong with it. It's a golden child. It it's, can't be anything wrong with it. It's powerful. It's very reliable. But how the pistons are arranged and how the cowling is mounted on the aircraft, directed exhaust and noise directly at the pilot <laughs> and crew compartments, resulting in the only significant complaint about the B-25 it had extremely high noise levels. And as a result, many B-25 pilots eventually suffered from varying degrees of hearing loss. Wow. Was hearing protection something that people used at this time? Because hearing it's protection, kind of required for you. Yes. Hearing protection is very much a thing now. Hearing protection wasn't so much a thing then for a variety of reasons. Now we have synthetic, basically, ear cups. Yeah. They're made of plastic. They're made of materials that seal quite easily over our heads. We use foam. We mm-hmm. use all of these synthetic materials. They had metal, but they didn't have foam. They didn't have no. the synthetic materials. It would so be like fabric it, stuffed with yeah, like with cotton, cotton or something else, right? Wool. Mm-hmm. So they had a little bit of hearing protection. If you wanted to like plug your ear, you're gonna put cotton in there, right? There, there isn't that much. So. These pilots are out there, they're flying it, they're not using hearing protection. And if they are, they're these very rudimentary headsets Mm -hmm. with a leather ear surround. And it really clamps onto your head to get any kind of hearing protection. Yeah. So they're very uncomfortable and they don't do that much to attenuate the noise from this airplane. Attenuate. Attenuate. That's a good word. Yeah. Word of the day. There you go. So there are whole books written about basically every World War II bomber you can imagine. I've done my best to break it down. Do you have any questions about the B-25 Mitchell? I don't think so. I'm, oh, I I'm, think I'm, I understand I didn't mean it. to tell you. It was originally built to accommodate three people. Right, because you have like pilot, co-pilot, and a bomber, right? That's it. A, a bombardier. Wouldn't this be the time where you'd also need somebody to navigate? Or would that be the co-pilot's job? So in this era, it would have been the co-pilot's job. These were not long-range bombers. Mm, So you weren't going to be flying them for hours and hours. Right. It wasn't that big of a deal. But they could, like I said, we talked about variants. These things could be modified to be like Mm multi-crew. They could go a long way. They could carry more weight. They could be converted for troop transport. Basically, you could almost do anything you wanted with this airplane. Nice. Now we talk about the company, or at least in this case, the organization. The United States Army Air Force was the major land-based aerial warfare service component of the United States Army and the aerial warfare service branch of the United States during and immediately after World War II. That sentence was quite a mouthful. (sighs) Oh my God. I'm really impressed you got through that. (laughs) Ooh, that was hard. Okay. So the United States Army Air Force only was a branch of the military between 1941 and 1945. It was created on... Why? I'll tell you. Yay. It was created on <laughs> June in June of 1941 as a successor to the previous United States Army Air Corps. Okay. So the Army had airplanes and then it transferred... The coordinates kind of changed the name to United States Army Air Force. And then after World War II, in 1947, they made it the United States Air Force. They just shortened the mouthful. They did. 
Right, exactly. So We got an editor in the office <laughs> right. now. The United States Air Force started basically after World War II. In the middle, it was Army Air Force. And before that, it was Army Air Corps. It's not. The distinction isn't really important. It's just a little bit of an evolution. But today, the United States Air Force is one of the six armed forces of the United States. So you're familiar with the Air Force? Yes. That's what we're talking about. Okay. Like you said, there's some nonsense in there, but... With My a, grandfather with was a part of the Air Force. He built planes. Oh, okay. B-25 Mitchell bombers? I wish I knew. Okay, so let's start with the date. July 18th, 1945. Okay. It's a Saturday. This is after um, the nuclear bomb has been dropped and after FDR has died. No, so this is after... FDR has died. This is after victory was declared in Europe. Okay. But the nuclear bomb is not dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki until August 6th and August 9th. Oh. I So it's pretty close got it now. to the end of World War II. Mm-hmm. Really close. Because Germany has already surrendered. Right. We're only fighting... Japan, Japan at this point. Got it. We're really two and a half weeks from the end of the war. Because after they drop the nuclear bomb, Japan Basically surrenders. Yeah. Anyway, but that's where we are. We're very close. So we've already had victory in Europe celebrations. Party. Right. And spirits are running high. I mean, New York is, you know, all the troops are coming home. The war is basically over and right. everyone knows it. Hell yeah. In 1945, the United States Army Air Force B-25 Mitchell bomber was flying from Bedford, Massachusetts, okay, to New York's LaGuardia Airport. Okay, we've been there in your yeah. podcast before. The captain and the pilot flying was named Lieutenant Colonel William F. Smith Jr. Another mouthful. He's 27 years old, but he's a very seasoned veteran. He flew throughout the war. He's a very experienced pilot. He flew 30 missions over Europe, and he has 1,000 combat hours. But he flew the significantly larger B-17 bomber, which has four engines. Oh, wow. So that's what he flew in the war. But now he's flying the B-25. Got it. In theory, this should be easier. But on this day, he's flying the B-25, and this airplane has a name. Okay. It was named Old John Feather Merchant. <laughs> why? <laughs> Please tell me why. I don't have an answer for why it was named that. But I'm that not is accepting name. no as an answer. Feather Merchant. Is feather that merchant. all one word? That's one. No, that's two words. So, old John Feather Merchant. But old, I do have some information about Old John Feather Merchant. <gasps> old John Feather Merchant had been converted to a passenger configuration to carry just five VIPs. In all its noisy, noisy luxury. Right. You feel so special when you get on that plane. And as soon as they turn it on, you're like, get me out of here. I don't want to be here anymore. You're like sitting in a nice, comfortable seat while you go deaf. Yes, exactly. Lieutenant Colonel Smith had flown this plane from Sioux Falls, Iowa. I'm sorry. Let me start again because Sioux Falls isn't in Iowa. (laughs) Lieutenant Colonel Smith had flown this plane from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Okay. And was scheduled to pick up his commanding officer in LaGuardia mm-hmm. before heading back to Sioux Falls. How far of a flight is that? That's a long way. Okay. I mean, it's like three quarters of the way across the U.S. Got it. So quite a long way in this bomber because it's not that fast. Right. I was about to say I didn't know it. I was curious like how far these bombers could go. I know you said that they are made not in that lots far. of different About 600 miles. Okay. But they were, but again... They were built in different versions, and so some of them would have extra tanks, and some of them may be designed to carry more weight and had less fuel, stuff like that. So they're going to stop a lot on the way. Oh, okay. They're not going to go, they wouldn't go directly to Sioux Falls. They would stop on the way. Okay, but anyway, they're going to LaGuardia. They're going to pick up his commanding officer, and then they're going to continue on back to Sioux Falls, where he's where they're based. Got it. His co pilot, which I said co pilot, I don't normally say that because first officer, right? Right, but this is different. This is different. This is a different time. He's 30 years old. He's a staff sergeant. His name is Christopher Dimitrovich. Okay. But they also had a passenger that day. Yeah. When they left Bedford, Massachusetts, they picked up 19-year-old Navy machinist mate Albert Perla. He was just riding from Massachusetts to be with his family in Brooklyn, New York. Well, that was mighty nice of them to give him a ride. Well, Albert's brother had been killed in combat. Very nice of them. And Albert was 
given leave to come back and support his family. That is really good of them. It was really good. And so Albert sat in the back. Well, yeah. I mean, does it really make that much of a difference if you're in the back if it's five seats? <laughs> <laughs> no, they're very, they're all very close together. Okay. So. Oh, you mean just not in the cockpit. Sorry. He's not riding in the got cockpit. It, He's not it. flying the airplane. He's just riding in the back. Yeah. Yeah. Would there be like any sort of barrier between the cockpit and the probably people? Not. Okay. Probably it's probably not. just all open. If you sat in that airplane, you would just look, you know, five feet away and you would see the pilot. Okay. Since we're talking about being inside the this plane that I'm unfamiliar with, I was curious. Right. And this one has a very small aluminum tube. And it, a little aluminum tube. A little aluminum tube. And it's still aluminum, though. But it was a cloudy and rainy Saturday, July morning in New York. This sounds like a bedtime story. They'd flown for about an hour from Bedford. And the plane approached New York City. And as it approached, it ran into quite heavy, low clouds. Okay. Lieutenant Colonel Smith called LaGuardia Tower and he asked for landing clearance. And the tower called him back and told him that the visibility was too low to land in LaGuardia. Mm. But it was good conditions over at Newark Airport, way over in New Jersey. It's not that far. It's not that far. So he should go there. Especially by plane. LaGuardia Tower told him that the clouds were really low and that there was a lot of fog. And they advised him to stay 1,500 feet over the city because they knew where he was. Yeah. Because they could see him on radar. The controller said to, what is it, Lieutenant Colonel Smith mm-hmm. Jr. He said, quote, I can't see the top of the Empire State Building. Lieutenant Colonel Smith replied, thank you very much. It's a weird response. <laughs> I don't quite get that. Basically what it's saying is that the controller is in the tower at LaGuardia. Uh-huh. And he sees Manhattan. Because you can see Manhattan from LaGuardia. And he can see the bottom of the Empire State Building and the buildings. But he can't see the top of it. Okay. So he's saying you should stay above 1,500 feet. Because it's foggy. It's foggy. You won't be able to see, see any of the if air, there are any, buildings. Right. Exactly. Got it. So Lieutenant Colonel Smith says, thank you very much. The controller could see him because in these days he had primary radar. That's radar that just reflects off the airplane. Right. So it's the where you just can tell that it's a solid object. That's it. Yep. He sees the airplane on his rudimentary green screen. Mm-hmm. He sees it as a return. Where you see the little bleep. Yep, that's bleep, that's the one bleep. like yeah, we that's from all the old movies mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Absolutely. That's what we had. So the B25 was on course for LaGuardia and they were flying at around 1500 feet as directed. They were heading south and tracking down the East River. Okay. Okay. With LaGuardia ahead of them and to their left. Yes, I understand. And I actually saved the map here so we could have a look at it. So yes. LaGuardia is ahead and to his left. Yes. Can you tell that I'm a visual person? Yes. And that's why <laughs> I and that's that's why I brought the map. I up. know. I love that you post them on Instagram. And the map will be on Instagram. It's important. Now, because we didn't have cockpit voice recorders back then or flight data recorders, we don't know exactly what happened next. But we can guess. Most likely, Lieutenant Colonel Smith caught a few glimpses of water below hmm. him. Mm-hmm. And he mistook the East River for the Hudson River, and he begins a descending right turn. To Newark. Because that's how you would go to Newark if you were over the Hudson. Imagine flying down the Hudson. Newark (gasps) is going to be ahead and to your right. Yeah. You turn right to go to Newark Airport when you're approximately a beam, which is Mm -hmm. 90 degrees from LaGuardia over here. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, he would know when he was across from LaGuardia because we had something called an NDB, a non-directional beacon. And there's a little dial in the cockpit that just has an arrow that points. Yes. So he's going to know when he's 90 degrees from LaGuardia. So what he's going to do is he's going to be tracking. He thinks he's going to be tracking down the Hudson. He's going to wait until the needle points at LaGuardia directly off his left-hand side. And Then he's going to turn right. Mm Mm-hmm. And then he's going to turn back to the left and he's going to look ahead and there's going to be Newark Airport. Okay? Mm-hmm. So this is where he thinks he is going to be. He thinks he's going to go down until he is 90 degrees from LaGuardia, which is over here. Yeah. He's going to turn to the right. Then he's going to turn back to the left and Newark is going to be down there. Yeah. That's what he thinks. He's almost following the... He's following the in Hudson. New Jersey Transit. Yes. But... He's not over the Hudson. He's over the East River. He's over the East River. Meaning he still 
his path, if he took that path, would go over Manhattan. Correct. Which, if he does not know he's over Manhattan, and there's fog, and we can't see the top of the Empire State Building, <laughs> I'm So nervous. you see a problem here? I'm nervous, okay. <laughs> to say the least. So let's talk about where Lieutenant Colonel Smith actually is. Right. Had Lieutenant Colonel Smith turned left from where he actually is, he would have just turned out over Brooklyn. Had he gone straight, he would have remained over water and tracked down the East River. Both options would have kept him safe, and he would have figured out his mistake quite quickly. Which is kind of what he should have done. Well, he thinks that he's tracking down the Hudson. Why does he think that? Do we know? And he can't quite tell exactly where he is because he's in and out of the clouds. He doesn't have all of his available signals because of the fog. Right. So he's just going off of his own intuition. Right. But remember that if you look down and you think, oh, I'm over the Hudson, and you look down and you see water below you, you just self-confirmed that That you are where you think you are. Yes, exactly. The truth is he's over the East River. Mm -hmm. He turns right and he descends quickly to just 500 feet to get a view of the ground. He does this because <laughs> <Sorry>. when... <laughs> that that just good, seems good like so like counterintuitive to me. Well, in these days, Manhattan didn't have the huge buildings that it right. has. And also, but, there aren't this many towers and all this stuff, right? You could fly 500 feet over the... Yeah. It's just farmland below you. It just seems so funny. And remember that the controller had told him the controller could see the bottom of the Empire State Building, but couldn't see the top. Right. Well. So if you get low, you can see. You can see underneath. Mm -hmm. So he goes, oh, well, if he can see the bottom of the Empire State Building, but not the top, then I can just descend, pop out of the clouds, look over there on my left, and there's going to be Newark Airport. Right. And I'm going to go land. Because we think that we're over the Hudson. Instead of Newark. No. He ended up in Midtown Manhattan. No, I knew that was going to happen. The Chrysler building passed off of his left-hand side, <gasps> and he never saw it. Oh, my God. Because he was still in the clouds. But as he came out of the bottom of the clouds, Lieutenant Colonel Smith quickly realized that he was flying in the middle of skyscrapers. Wow. Oh, my goodness. I know this kind of weather, too, because I live in Brooklyn and I'm in Manhattan all the time. You literally can't see above the 20th floor. 10th 20th floor and so many buildings have like 40 to 70 i mean not back then but 40 oh, they at did. least i mean they still had they were they still had skyscrapers but just not as many as we have now so i have oh a bunch of quotes God. i have a bunch of quotes they're all from old newspapers i'll tell you my sources at the end let's get to the quotes oh this is gonna be good a radio sports announcer said he was driving to work when he heard a loud airplane he said, quote, I looked up and saw the plane pass pass overhead and I yelled, climb, you fool, climb out my car window. <gasps> well, if it's this loud plane that we know it is, he's not going to hear that. <laughs> I just think it's funny that he yelled out his car window. What would you do if you saw that? <laughs> I'd probably I mean, just I... stare at it. I mean... So at this point, the B-25 is going nearly 200 miles an hour. It's on a collision course with the 850-foot RCA building, which now we would know as 30 Rockefeller Center. No way. Whoa. <laughs> so Lieutenant Colonel Smith sees the RCA building in yeah. front of him just as he bop- pops out of the bottom of the clouds. He takes evasive action, and at the last moment, he banks hard to the left, <laughs> and he starts a steep climb, uh-huh. missing the RCA building. <gasps> wow. Now, remember, it was a Saturday morning. The streets of downtown Manhattan were pretty empty on a foggy Saturday morning. That surprises me. But there were some people around Fifth Avenue who heard the engines power up, saw the plane, and saw it start climbing. Wow. A guy named William Utley, he's the vice president of a public relations firm in the Mercantile Building, mm-hmm. said, oh, I love these quotes. This is these quotes <laughs> I know, kill I'm so me. Excited. Oh my God. <laughs> said, quote, the plane passed my window at eye level or just above. My office is on the 38th floor. No. It looked like the pilot was trying to gain altitude. <gasps> he really got down to like the 40th floor yeah. or lower. Yeah. Yeah. That's about 500 feet. How are you doing? You doing all right? No. <laughs> I'm not okay. I'm, hold- I'm like, if I had pearls on, I'd be holding them. 
I cannot believe I've never heard of this before. <laughs> so in 1945, the tallest building on Earth lay just a few blocks south of 30 Rock. The 102-story Empire State Building towered 1,450 feet above Midtown Manhattan. Construction began in 1930. It was completed in 1931. Yeah. It took just a year to build. That's crazy. I didn't know that. It remained the tallest building in the world until 1970 yeah. when the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center were built. Yeah. I was just like, I needed I needed a second. That was stressing me out. Okay, so he's okay. banked. He banked left. Left. And he started to. Which is south. Yes. And he started to. Basically, he flew down Fifth Avenue. Yeah. The B-25 bomber is a good performing airplane. Yes. But on that morning the Empire State Building proved to be too tall for the bomber. No. At 9.40 a.m., that B-25, old John Feather Merchant, <gasps> impacted the Empire <gasps> State Building at an altitude of 913 feet between the 78th floor and the 79th floor. Going just under 200 miles per hour, it was calculated to hit with over a million pounds of force. Oh, wow. A hole, 18 feet by 20 feet was torn open in the limestone and granite facade of the Empire State Building. I have so many thoughts right now. I'm going to show you a picture. I <gasps> He was in the clouds and didn't see it. He was climbing as quickly wow. as he could. So he dipped down, he turned, he flew down 5th Avenue and climbed up steep. Steep as he could. Yeah. And the Empire State Building was in the way. I can't in the way like it could move i can't believe i've never heard of this before okay but i've never toured the empire state building i bet they talk about it there a hole 18 feet by 20 feet was torn open in the limestone and granite facade after wow. the initial impact there was a huge fuel explosion that started <gasps> a structure fire and burned so hot that the fog around the building was evaporated away wow and the whole building could be seen that's crazy one engine from the b-25 cut through the entire 78th floor and exited on the south side it landed wow. a few blocks away on a rooftop and started a fire in that building jeez the other engine parts and parts of the landing gear went down an elevator shaft and were found in a sub-basement nanette morrison at the same firm as mr utley said there was a terrific explosion when the plane hit, and it looked as though the flash and flame from the explosion spread over four floors. <gasps> oh, no. Mort Cooper, a pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals, <laughs> witnessed the crash from the 16th floor of the Hotel Commodore next door. He said, Wow, next door. I heard the roar of a plane, and I picked it up as it roared between me and the RCA building. Suddenly, it flashed across my mind that it was flying very low, and it would hit the Empire State Building. He, An like, saw it coming. Oh, yeah. That's Another insane. witness at a department store across the street said, the floor moved. And I looked at the <gasps> clerk, and I said, isn't that strange? And I thought, it couldn't be an earthquake. No, those don't really happen. No. In the Northeast. But it's interesting to think that that million pounds of force shook the earth. Absolutely it would. Harry Weiss... I mean, like, when somebody's, like... I feel like everyone growing up has a house in their city or town that has a gas explosion or something, and you feel and hear that all over town. And there aren't two engines in there. It's less, probably less force than this, but I don't really know. Harry Weisskopf on the 63rd floor of the Empire State Building said, there were two explosions and the whole building shook. And looking out the window, we saw flaming debris falling down. Another I, that sounded like it could have been a quote from the world. Yes. I agree. Another man on the 36th floor said the whole Empire State Building seemed to jump about six inches. <gasps> wow. Daniel Norton. What a description. I love all these like wow. descriptions. Daniel Norden on the 18th floor was thrown out of his chair amid glass and debris that hit his windows and his windows were blown out Shh. as the debris fell. I mean, it's chaos. Yeah. Now the 56th floor is getting closer That's to the 78, very 79, close. right? 
A secretary on the 56th floor said, I was at the file cabinet, and all of a sudden, the building felt like it was going to topple over. It threw me across the room, and I landed against the wall. People were screaming and looking at each other. We didn't know what to do. What would you do? I I mean, it's just confusion. A 24-year-old bookkeeper who was on the 72nd floor said, everything shook. We ran to the windows and looked down. We saw flames below us. We looked up. We saw flames above us. What? How did they not get flames on them? On this day, the estimated population of the Empire State Building was 1,500 occupants. Okay. They began descending down the stairs. Some walked down more than 80 floors, including a tour guide with a group of 35 tourists who were on the 86th floor observation deck. What? Just eight floors above the impact. Also... To be up there and see that coming at you? The, uh, Sorry, I, I think I'm, know. I'm yelling. I'm, I need to like take a calming breath. <laughs> as the occupants started down the stairs, the power failed as the lines were cut by the airplane. Ooh. And there were no lights in the stairwells. No one was injured in the evacuation. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. I thought so I've, too. I've, for sure people could have been trampled. Are you going to tell me about the crash? I will. I'll get there. A lot okay. of people thought I'm immediately that, that it was an enemy attack being Be- at the end right. of World War II. Right. Some saying that they thought it was a German bomb. Right. That makes a lot of sense for the time. Let's talk about the 78th floor. That's On the 78th floor about. where the airplane hit was an office where 20 people were working. Mm. It was a Catholic charity. Many of the people were killed instantly. Mm-hmm. Others in the office and the office next door crowded into a small room to escape smoke and flames. One of those workers said, I thought I was not going to make it, so I took off my rings, a high school graduation ring and a friendship ring from my boyfriend, and oh. I threw them out the window. I thought, mm-hmm. I won't be around to have them, so someone else might as well have use of them. Oh. That's wow. an interesting thing to do in a crisis, right? That's like, yeah, that's... That's the first thing she thought of. I'm not going to make it, so I might as well let somebody else have my rings. Right. I, also, I are we? was that a girl? Was that a lady? Yes, it was. Okay. I wanted it to be a gay guy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Not in this era, honey. Oh, I know. I'm just... Uh, We're going to come back to this. We're going to come back to this one. Tough. That ride isn't over yet. A janitor <sighs> was trapped on the 79th floor, and he jumped to escape the fire. He did not survive the fall. Mm -mm. 20-year-old Betty Lou Oliver Mm -hmm. was the elevator operator. Mm -hmm. She was on the 80th floor when the B-25 hit the building. She was thrown across the floor and badly burned. Some co-workers gave her first aid and put her on a makeshift stretcher. Mm. They moved Betty into the elevator because they couldn't carry her down the stairs. The B-25 impact had launched debris through the elevator shafts, partially shearing the cables. When Betty was placed inside the elevator, the cable snapped. No. Betty and her elevator fell 75 mm. stories, ending up in the basement of the Empire State Building. A Coast Guard hospital apprentice was on 34th Street, and he went into a pharmacy, and he told them what had happened, and they gave him first aid supplies. Yay. <laughs> exactly. They, they also gave him a dozen syringes of morphine. Oh, that because th- um, they would have that then. <laughs> yes. Then he ran into the building and he heard someone yelling for help from the basement. The 17-year-old no medic in training ran to the basement and he was small enough to fit into the elevator shaft. And among the wreckage, he found Betty Lou Oliver alive. No way. Yes. Thank God. Oh, wow. Betty That's Lou. That's amazing. Betty Lou fell more than 70 stories but the landing was softened by the huge coils of cables that had piled up beneath it wow. and by the air pressure that had built up in the elevator shaft. That's incredible. So the medic gave her morphine and he tended to her <laughs> as she was carefully cut out of the wreckage by a rescue crew. She was in her last three days of employment of when the event course. happened. Of course. <laughs> of course. She took eight months to recover from her burns, wow. her broken pelvis, her broken Oof. back, and her broken neck. But she was entered into the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest survived elevator fall. She still holds the title to this day. <laughs> She's probably for the rest of the 
all time, I'm sure. Also, that bit is like a scene heal? from a movie. Like, could she walk again? Yes. She broke her pelvis, back, and neck. Yep. And and had burns. And burned and could walk again. Yes. That's wow. But the, isn't that like a crazy scene from a movie? Yes. Like, it hits, and then they put her on a stretcher because they can't carry her down the stairs. They put her in the elevator, and the ele- you know I can see the cinematography. The elevator creaks, and then the cable snaps, and she plunges, but she lives. Yeah, and the seventeen-year-old paramedic. What? In training is the one to save her. Right. And he runs across the street and he runs into the pharmacy. He's like, this just happened. Give me medical the, supplies. Yes. And they just give it to him. And right. then they send him on his way with Ugh. morphine and all the other. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I'm glad that you uh, brought that in in the middle of this because I needed it. <laughs> I needed that happy moment. You want to know what happened to Betty Lou Oliver? Yes. After recovering, she moved to Arkansas with her husband. She had three kids, seven grandkids. She died in 1999 at the age of 74. Yes, Betty Lou! And I'm amazed she was able to have kids. Yeah. Do anything. Walk. So remember those rings that got tossed out the window? Yeah. But we got the quote from that person. Yeah, she tossed her rings out the window. Yeah. Well, all the people hiding in that room survived. They were rescued by fire crews. Rescue workers on the ground found her rings and returned them to her. Aww. She married her boyfriend, the person that had given her the friendship ring. Oh, <laughs> so much cuteness. This should be a movie. I think you might have said that before this. It should be. The body of Albert, the 19-year-old passenger, mm. was identified among the engine and landing gear wreckage at the bottom of the elevator shaft two days after the crash. No remains of Lieutenant Colonel Smith or, or Staff Sergeant Christopher Dmitrovich have ever been located. Probably just got like burned up. Yeah, completely. Oh, that poor... He was going home to comfort his parents. That's. I mean, that is awful, right? It's such a mix of like tragedy and triumph. It's, it's Right. Yeah, it's hard to hear. So what about the building? Yeah. The accident did not compromised the building's structural integrity because it had been built so well in a year that's incredible but repairs cost a million dollars that's why they charge you 60 dollars to go see it that's why yeah they're still trying to recover Mm -hmm. that's the equivalent of about 15 million dollars today i still think that's pretty inexpensive hundreds of firemen fought the fire which was extinguished in about 40 minutes good job that fire also entered the Guinness Book of World Records for being the highest floor structure fire that was brought under control. Nice. After the investigation, the federal government offered families of the victims money. Many accepted, but many refused. Hmm. And those people who refused initiated a lawsuit. This is a lot of firsts. Yeah. The lawsuit ended with Congress passing the Federal Tort Claims Act of 1946. And for the first time in U.S. history, citizens were given the right to sue the federal government. Nice. Congress made the act retroactive so that the 1945 victims of the crash could seek money as a remedy. I'm glad because what they offered was probably insignificant in comparison to what people now say is like enough for a life. I know that I know people are like not there's not enough money in the world, obviously, for sure, especially if you're those parents who lost just lost both of their sons. There's not enough money in the world. But I want to point out something here. Let's imagine that our government did this today. I can't imagine it, Mm -mm. literally. Basically, the government then passed a law to help people sue the government. That's cool. I don't feel like that is anything that would happen today. Yeah. That's mind-blowing to me. So for the first time, because of a result of this accident, people could seek money as a remedy from the government. And I I just find that to be shocking. So a lot of firsts. Kind of makes sense because the time. I mean, right, but it does. But it does make sense (laughs) at the time because remember, we were a nation united against a a true threat, which was the Axis powers, Nazi Germany, Hitler, all the things that go with that. So we were truly a nation united. Right. This is a different time. Mm -hmm. 
In all, 14 people died as a result of the crash. Three people on the plane, nine people in the office on the 78th floor, and that one janitor on the 79th floor, and one elevator operator. Over Um, two dozen other people were badly injured. I'm amazed that it's not more people. I agree. Especially because it was a set. It's because it was a Saturday morning. Had this not been a Saturday morning, oh, if it was a there work would have day? been 4,500 to 5,000 people in the building, not just 1,500. The fact about nobody being injured on during the evacuation would have probably oh, not there's, That wouldn't happened. have been true. The other thing is, imagine had it been a nice sunny day when more people were outside. Out, yeah. You had falling, flaming debris. Mm-hmm. And no one was injured or killed on the ground, which is it's shocking. Amazing. That is especially amazing. in that area of town. That is amazing. Intense. Wow. Mm-hmm. That I feel like I literally have just watched like an epic movie. A year later, a small airplane would impact a building in the financial district. Really? And that would be the last airplane to hit a building in Manhattan for another 55 years until the events of September 11th. Wow. That's the whole story. I'm... What are your thoughts? <sighs> I just can't think. I just think on a weekday, that, you it, know, the it carnage. It could have been so much worse. It would have been in the debris raining down like on a sunny day in July on a weekday. It would have been. Yes. That's the thing I think that is the most shocking about this is the lack of destruction. And I know this plane is significantly smaller than plane in the um, that hit the World Trade Center. Right. Let me show you some pictures. That That's Betty Lou Oliver. Oh, Betty Lou. She's beautiful. Okay. Well, do you have so anything? So the whole event was also really quick, too. I mean, he did like a sharp turn going 200 miles an hour and then couldn't, and then tried to get up out of from That's the it. Empire State And just building. tried to recover. And it's it amazing sounded- to think about. So he descends essentially into Midtown Manhattan and. The Chrysler building passes off to his left-hand side, and he never sees it as he continues to descend. He pops out of the bottom of the clouds, and 30 Rock is right in front of him. That's unreal to me. So had he banked to the right, it would have taken him out over Central Park. And he would have been fine. Yep. But... That that whatever that split-second decision was, was the wrong decision. He just goes, oh my God. Yeah, exactly. He... he, uh, it's not necessarily even a decision. No, it's not even point. a decision. It's a reaction. Like it's just you said. a reaction. It's just miss this building. Yep. So then he and you'll miss the next one when you, you'll worry about the next one when you get to something it. else as it comes. Yeah. Right. Because had he continued straight, he would have hit Thirty Rock. Right. So he turns to the left. He flies down Fifth Avenue and climbs back into the clouds. Unfortunately, the Empire State Building is directly in front of him. So it sounds like this uh, took maybe like. 30 seconds. It was probably the course of a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You're not trained for Mm. this. You don't, you're not trained to dodge buildings. No, he's a combat pilot. He doesn't expect to come out and see a skyscraper. You go a place, you drop the bombs and And you you go back. That's it. Yeah. And and in his original plan, that's kind of what he was doing. He was going somewhere, picking up people, dropping them off and going back. Should have been well within his abilities. Oh, it's just crazy to think about. So anyway, I loved your reactions. Thank you. I'm going to read my sources. Okay. okay. I'm a little like, I hope I can go to sleep now. Okay. So here's my sources. <laughs> Mostly from archived pieces from the Library of Congress, the New York Daily News, mm-hmm. the Scranton, Pennsylvania Tribune, mm-hmm. the New York Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and the Knoxville Journal, and a few others. The Knoxville Journal. That's kind of funny. It was made national news. Yeah. And um, I use the website's Wikipedia, history.com, npr.org, argunners.com, and allthatsinteresting.org. Oh, that's a good website. I think I need to hug um, the pupper now to to make me feel better. Okay. Well, you go do that. Rocky, come here. (laughs) Good boy.